Deadline's Crew Call is brought to you by HBO, presenting The Last of Us. Nominated for 24 Emmys, including Outstanding Drama Series and Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series for Bella Ramsey. Don't miss the series critics call a masterpiece. The Last of Us is now streaming on Max. Today on Crew Call, we have Lana Wilson. She directed Hulu's Pretty Baby, Brooke Shields, and she's Emmy-nominated for Outstanding Directing for a Documentary Nonfiction Program. So tell me about getting into documentary filmmaking with your first project after Tiller, because what's interesting is we hear about students going through film school and selecting a thesis, and it's usually a fictional film. Mm-hmm. And documentary filmmaking, arguably, it's a very challenging part of the business because of all the prep that is involved. Mm-hmm. It could take years before a documentary film comes to fruition versus mm-hmm. shooting an independent film for 30 days and, and getting it up and edited within a year. But can you tell us about how you came to it? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I didn't go to film school. I In undergrad, I studied choreography and film history. And I actually worked for an art biennial called Performa. I was ultimately a curator there for eight years. So I had a whole other career before I started making films. And I think I I always, a part of me always wanted to be a filmmaker, but didn't quite have the courage to do it, to make the leap. I was, you know, curating film retrospectives and programs and had a lot of opinions about films and watched a lot of movies, but, um, it's, it's different and much more vulnerable to be on the other side of the table and make something and put it out there for judgment. And I remember what happened was really that I was watching on the news when Dr. George Tiller, an abortion provider in Kansas, was assassinated in his own church in 2009. He was handing out programs at the church and a man came in and shot him. And I remember watching that and being devastated by what had happened but also frustrated by how it was being covered on the news. It was always like an anti-abortion person and a pro-choice person having an intellectual debate. And there was no real discussion of who this doctor was, why was he so controversial, who were the patients who were coming to him and why. And I also wondered um, who would be left now that this doctor was assassinated, he did third trimester abortions, who else would do this? And why would they do this? And what would their lives be like now, potentially walking around with targets on their backs? I learned that this doctor was a military veteran, evangelical Christian, a registered Republican. I thought, that's not who I thought a controversial abortion doctor would be. And so all of this led me to start thinking, I wonder who these doctors are and what their lives are like. Wouldn't it be amazing to see a film that was inside their lives and inside all of the gray area and the abortion debate rather than this black and white um, debate we see on the news. And I remember starting to become jealous of the theoretical filmmaker that would make that movie. I started to think, oh, it would be so great to be them making that movie. And then I started to think the movie will probably be terrible. Like I was very snobby about aesthetics and stuff. And I thought it will be shot horribly. It will be bad. And then it just kind of hit me like, I keep saying I want to be a filmmaker. The only thing stopping me from doing that is making a film. And I also realized no one else was going to make a film about this subject. There was no other filmmaker. And I just, it felt urgent enough to me that I thought I have to do this. 
it almost wasn't a choice. So how did you start this? Did you get a camera, find the, go out to Kansas, find the subjects? Did you start like at ground zero? Yeah. I reached out to, I asked a friend of mine who had been working in documentary and made documentaries before, would you partner with me on this? Her name is Martha Shane. She's a fantastic filmmaker. And she said, yes, she was game. She liked the idea. And so I got to work with someone who had made documentaries and who I could learn from in the process. Um, but in other ways, yeah, it is kind of what you described. And I mean, it's true what you say that there's a lot of prep work required for a documentary versus fiction film you can shoot in 30 days and then you're done. But I think part of the reason that a documentary is more accessible for a lot of people to make is because you can start with very little. You can start with just an idea and a camera and start to slowly gather and build stuff over time. Whereas with the fiction film, it's more about rallying the resources, the actors, the team. You have to do a lot of rallying and gathering together before you could shoot the film. But with the documentary, you can begin in a very small way. And you know that also allowed me to, so I made After Tiller over the next two years while keeping my full-time job. So I could, I didn't have to, I, I had the financial security of having a full-time job that I did. And I would go, you know, once every two months, I would go for a long weekend or something like that. I was able, my boss also at this arts organization was is supportive of artists. So when I said to her, hey, could I take two days off unpaid to go film for this project? She said, yes. And in fact, my boss at this old job gave the first donation to the film. She wrote me a check for $200 and said, you have to make this. So I was very lucky to have a boss at a full-time job who supported me having the little bit of flexibility that I needed to shoot the film while I kept working there. How did you fund it? Just on your own? Yeah. I mean, it was like Martha and I compiled a list of every person on any board of any reproductive justice organization, um, anyone we saw in the end credits of any film related to abortion. We, we had a list of like hundreds and hundreds of people and we cold called them. We tried to get them to have coffee with us. We had hundreds of coffees with people where we'd say, we're doing this thing. It, would you consider supporting it? Or do you know someone who might be able to support it or help us in any way? And some people said, this is a terrible idea. Do not do this. And they would walk out of the meeting. Occasionally someone would say, you know, I can't help you, but I think I know someone who can, I'll introduce you. And like one out of 100 times, someone would say, I can make a donation. And eventually all of this led us to one amazing woman um, named Diane Max, who was head of the board of Planned Parenthood saying, I can make a more significant donation. And so it was really, um, months and months and months of that kind of grassroots meeting people getting ideas explaining the idea of the film that led to we, we raised all the money through individual donations until the final few months of making the film now one of the things that is typically on the mind of any documentary filmmaker and if you could talk about this is just yeah. The worst thing you could ever hear while you're making your film is that somebody else has the same idea mm. and somebody else be it in a bigger organization, whether it's CNN. Mm -hmm. Is that ever on your mind? Because things like that can completely stall a project you've had long in the works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, with, with this project that wasn't on my mind, because I know no one else, no one else was going to touch this subject with other projects. It has been, and I have mixed feelings about it. Cause on the one hand, 
I think that every filmmaker approaches a subject so differently that I think as long as you make a great film, that's all that matters. On the other hand, I have had situations where I've heard, oh, you know, so-and-so, you know, Vice, for example, they want to make a film about this or that. And that's the kind of situation where you think, oh, no, like Vice is a big audience. They would make a totally different style of film than I would make. That could actually be a little uh, damaging for the potential of my independent project. So I think that you have to talk really honestly with that about your subjects. If you're aware that there's another project or that many, many people are competing for their for their attention. And nowadays when so many people find their ideas from stories they read online, very often if you reach out to a subject in an incredible story you read online, there are multiple filmmakers, streamers, whoever, that have reached out to them about it very often. So I think what makes the difference is one, talking honestly with your subject about, I know these other people want to film with you. Here's why I think you should film with me and why I'm asking for fit the situation. It doesn't have to be your life rights for forever. It could be only film with me for six months and no one else, whatever, whatever you need and think would enable you to do the best possible work and give it the best chance of having a life, the big life that you want your film to have we think of documentaries as being unbiased. Mm -hmm. But in this day and age, especially since there's a plethora of them with streaming and everything, some of them are not. <laughs> some of them are right. very, and I don't want to name names. Yeah. Is there ever any kind of pressure to do that? Or it depends on what studio you're working with or what network, maybe whoever's funding the project. It's just very interesting in this day and age. Yeah. Because particularly if you're of a certain political side, mm. they'll see a certain documentary and they'll swear by it and they'll swear mm -hmm. that it's true. Why? Because it's a documentary. Yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah, I, I guess I, I definitely see it as, as less black and white and that um, I, and I don't see this as a journalistic enterprise in the same way as like, you know, when I was making this film about abortion providers, I wasn't interested in getting spending equal amounts of screen time with anti-abortion people and pro-choice people because that's what I saw the news doing. And I wanted to do something very different and give it a really clear perspective and point of view. And for me, the best documentaries do have a really specific and clear perspective point of view. So I guess the question is if you consider that to be biased or not, you know what I mean? I, I do see it as a, an art form creative storytelling. And often I have situations where, you know, for example, in my second film, The Departure, uh, it's about a Zen priest who counsels people who are considering suicide and he inspires them to keep on living. But he himself is exhausting himself, staying up all the time, trying to save people's lives. He's self-destructive and becomes sick himself because of this work. And there's a sequence in the film where we see him, he's often out all night counseling suicidal people. He's out at a nightclub partying through the whole night to release stress. And then we cut to him in an ambulance going to the hospital. He didn't literally go from the dance club to the hospital, but his work and the way he released stress did cause the health breakdown that led him to the hospital. You know what I mean? So that's the kind of cut that is not literally true but it's fundamentally true to who he is. So I think you're constantly making decisions like that all the time when you make a documentary. And you're, you know, you're often, you're putting things 
out of order chronologically. That's one obvious example. When would you do that and when would you not? I think it depends on what's the best tool for communicating the fundamental story that you are telling and what your perspective on this person or this situation is. So after Tiller gets into Sundance, were you shocked? Yeah. Oh, we were. (laughs) Tell me about getting in and I got to imagine the rest is history. Yeah, we, we were truly shocked. We were thrilled. It was a moment to, it, it was, it was unbelievable. We were really shocked. And I remember it was almost like we didn't quite know what we were getting into when we were called and told it got into Sundance. The programmer calling us was also like, we are very concerned about the security of these doctors and of you guys. Like, so part of the initial call was we're going to have metal detectors at all the screenings. Utah has pretty loose gun laws. And these are four doctors. There have been assassination attempts, you know, death threats, at least many death threats against all of them and an assassination attempt against at least one of them. So it was it was not only going to Sundance, but it was going with uh, bodyguards, metal detectors, FBI agents. There were bomb sniffing dogs. There were two armed men on either side of the screen at the Sundance premiere watching the audience for sudden moves. So it was very intense but you know a lot of stress leading up to that premiere and especially concerned about if anything if someone might get through at the premiere who wanted to attack one of these doctors in the same way their beloved friend and mentor was murdered so but we got through the premiere and then at the end there was this standing ovation and the doctors came out on stage and i remember thinking they have never gotten any reception like this before abortion providers are largely stigmatized within the medical community. And then even within abortion providers, third trimester abortion providers are deeply stigmatized. So that moment of the doctors walking out on stage and this response from the audience is just one of the best moments of my life and was really meaningful. And you submitted to Sundance independently. No one was was repping you. You did it cold. We had a sales agent at that point. So what happened was, so towards the end of, maybe we were six months out from finishing the film, we got our first film grant from an organization called Chicken and Egg that supports female filmmakers and really supports first and second time filmmakers. It's incredibly difficult, next to impossible to get a grant when you haven't made a film before. And this is one of the only organizations that takes risks on new filmmakers in that way. So they gave us a grant and then they, that became a huge thing because it was like a seal of approval that I don't think we, maybe we got one other grant after that, but they, um, they got an extension from Sundance for us to be able to submit a week later. So we had an extra week of editing time. And um, they also introduced us to a sales agent called Synetic, who we submitted the film to a few sales agents. They really loved the film. They wanted to represent it. So they were on board at that point too. So that's kind of what we had in pocket. And then it was the kind of thing, I forgot to say, I, we did raise money from individuals, but, and we also, I had a full-time job that paid my bills. Martha had a separate job. We also, I regret to say, we thought we wouldn't do this. And then we did, we both opened up as many zero interest credit cards as possible. And we maxed all of them out. And this was oh not good in the end. It, it, I remember we started out and Martha and I both looked at each other and said, we're not going to be those filmmakers who open up credit cards and then it you know, ruins their lives. And then, But then a few months in, we were like, this is so amazing. We've got to film more and we didn't have the money and we felt, you know, we didn't know what else to do. So we did that. And so we 
accumulated a huge amount of credit card debt. Once we got into Sundance, suddenly all the grant givers that had rejected us called and were like, you got the grant. (laughs) So, you know, that brought in a bunch of grants. And then later, just I just want to say that we did ultimately a year after the film came out, we were able to pay off the credit card debt. But I just want to acknowledge that, you know, this is the documentary film industry is one in which you slowly realize most filmmakers are independently wealthy. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a place where people of extreme privilege really dominate because it's so financially unstable. So I just wanted to say that we opened up a lot of credit cards because, you know, that's that's the, we have other full-time jobs and opened up a ton of credit cards and would not have been able to make it otherwise. We're going to get to Pretty Baby Brooke Shields in a bit. Tell us about coming away from Sundance. I mean, I got to yeah. imagine life changed, an agency finds you, <laughs> all of a sudden things no, get... No, 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 none of that happened. No, 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 I went back to my full-time job. I love that. No, not quite. I actually didn't get an agent until after the Taylor Swift documentary. So I, after, after Taylor and Sundance, making your second film is harder than making your first film. That's my experience. And I know a lot of other filmmakers feel the same way. I think it's because there's this idea, oh, you made this first film and, you know, after Taylor did great and it won an Emmy for best documentary. Oh, things will be easy now, or you'll get funding now. It's just not the case. And I, I think that the second film is harder because I don't exactly know why, but that's my experience. It's the experience of a lot of other filmmakers I know. I think it's because you don't yet have um, like an income source that you can survive on from filmmaking. So you, I, kept, I went back to my full-time job, you know? Um, but then you also like other people, I don't know. It's just harder to get support because there's this idea of, oh, well that film was successful. So this next project will be fine. I don't know. So it was actually harder to raise money for my second film, um, The Departure. But I went back to my full-time job the departure is still, I think, the film I'm personally the proudest of making. Um, it came out, and then I was eventually able, around the time that I was making the departure, to transition my full time job from working as a curator to working in television. I started writing for writing recreations for documentary series at Nat Geo. I started story producing. So then I still had a full time job, but it was a little more in the vein of what I wanted to do. And it was a great way for me to kind of hone my craft, basically. When you're constantly making short films for a TV network, um, you have to move really fast. You can't be precious about anything. You're getting in footage that you haven't shot it. You don't know what's in it. And you have to learn how to tell a story from that footage in a week or less. You know, it was often that kind of thing. So it was a great craft honing enterprise for me. I, I released my second film, The Departure. I made a web series called A Cure for Fear. Then I made the Taylor Swift documentary. And it's really after that, that's when the agents called. <laughs> that was a fantastic movie. I was Thank at the, the premiere of that at Sundance. and what, Oh, cool. Literally wrote the story right there in the lobby of the Eccles afterwards. <laughs> you know, the typical thing is, you know, after we write stories in the Eccles after it premieres, the cops, they treat you like criminals. They're like, you need to get out of here. They're here. literally picking you up. <laughs> while you're typing. I'm working, yeah. (laughs) They place you outside on the sidewalk. Wow. How did that come about? I mean, what I love about the documentary was that 
honestly, like I knew a couple of her songs. I really didn't know her as a person. You gave her a great humanity for someone who was a global superstar. I think that was the cool thing that I loved about that documentary. It was like, Mm -hmm. you know, deconstructing her process, Mm -hmm. the fact that she really aims to live a normal life, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. remotely. I really loved it. But how did you win her over? Well, so that came about, basically, one thing that's so interesting to me looking back is that I would often pitch projects to Netflix and it wouldn't go over. And I would leave the meeting feeling like that was a disaster. You know what I mean? But what's funny is that even if a project doesn't work out at a place over the years and over the time, you still get to know people and and they might see your work, even if it's not the right fit for Netflix and respect it or love something about it in some way. So that things that might seem like failed meetings actually can add up to a really meaningful relationship. Um, so what happened was basically I, I finished the departure. I was editing A Cure for Fear and I got a call from Netflix saying, would you be interested in making a documentary about Taylor Swift? I mean, it was just that. And what oh, had wow. happened was I think they had um, brainstormed directors for this Taylor Swift documentary. Basically she had been, she was doing a concert film for Netflix and Netflix had said, would you also be interested in the personal documentary? And she wasn't really sure about it. Um, so they sent her a list of directors and she watched everyone's work and she watched my work and really responded to it. And she wanted to meet me. And so wow. Netflix called saying this and, um, you know, they, they, they'd sent Taylor some more stuff about me and, um, I went to meet her and it was, it was very crazy. This unfolded in like four days, you know, and I can't stress that. I mean, my previous films are about like abortion, suicide, PTSD. It was so, but I think that the reason it oddly felt like, oh, this person could be a good fit is because I think they, and, you know, she saw my film, that kind of a sensitivity, a compassion, complexity, gray area, not black and white, but also an ability to kind of be in a room in really challenging situations and let them unfold and hold space for them and all of their complicated dimensions in a way. So, um, you know, I met her and it was just like, whenever you meet a possible documentary subject, there's an immediate, the chemistry either happens or it doesn't. You know, it's like when you meet a person, you kind of trust them or you don't. There's the, the first impression and then there's what you learn about someone over time and how you bond with them over time. And with Taylor, it was, it was like that. I mean, it felt like a little more high pressure to me. I remember kind of waiting to meet her and one of her managers was like, what's your favorite Taylor Swift album? And luckily I had, I had answers, but when I met her, she was just, she's exactly, you know, how she seems in the film. She's brilliant, funny, smart, warm. When we first met, she wanted to talk about kind of narrative structure and documentaries and like what my process was like and about composing music for documentaries and what that was like. She had all of these amazing questions. She, in terms of, this documentary, she knew she was at a turning point in her life. She hadn't done an interview for almost three years when I met her and she knew this was a big pivot point, but it wasn't clear yet, you know, to what, or what was going to happen and what was going to unfold. And so it was, it was this amazing couple of hours I spent with her where, yeah, it's both her, um, you know, learning more about me and how I work and seeing if we connect. And then for me, it's like, it's, you know, making sure this is a person who who really wants a real film and a real perspective on her life and doesn't see this as, um, you know, branded content or something. And it was immediately clear to me it wasn't that way with Taylor at all. Like she was completely game for something that was a raw, 
look at her and her life and what was going on. So it, it's really just comes down to, so it is how it feels when you first meet the person. And we had this great long conversation and I, it was just, it's kind of like, you know, I would say what I saw going on in her life at that moment. And is that, is that what you're going through now? You know, it's a lot of back and forth of like, does that feel right to you? Is that what you're experiencing? And just getting to know each other's stuff, but also like, you know, I would just explain like, from what I know now, here's an idea of the film that I see. But then the other part of the trust is that doesn't happen right away is what happens during the filming process. Because whenever you're filming with someone and it doesn't matter if they're a massive global star like Taylor is, or if they're some random person who has no public image, you are still asking to film things and they have to be comfortable with it. You know what I mean? So you're having these conversations all the time with every subject. I like to film this because da 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 da. And I think you always have to kind of keep in mind the vision of what the film is and what it needs and to be able to describe that to your subjects. And so um, with Taylor too, it's a lot of building trust over time. I love to film this because of X, Y, and Z. And, um, you know, filming, for example, her songwriting, that was a really, that was the hardest thing to, to get access to film because she is so scrutinized on every level. There's no escape from the cameras, but also from judgment in general. And like her one safest place is being in the recording studio no eyes on her it's just her and the producer and she's in her happy place and you see in the film i mean she's just the most extraordinary songwriter i love one reviewer was like it's like watching michael jordan shoot three-pointers at practice you know so and then of course it's, it's the artistic part of that which i get too which is you throw some random other person into that kind of sacred place is that going to screw everything up are you even going to be able to write songs with someone filming you and so that took time to get there um so it's it's both the initial meeting but then it's also the building the trust over time and say and then towards the end it's like okay we're getting really close here's the story of the film what we need are these three things and that's gonna make this really great and so you're kind of constantly having those conversations the whole way through no matter who your subject is deadlines crew call is brought to you by hbo presenting the last of us Nominated for 24 Emmys, including Outstanding Drama Series and Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series for Bella Ramsey. Don't miss the series critics call a masterpiece. The Last of Us is now streaming on Max. So pretty baby, Brooke Shields. This seems like an organic, you know, what's one of your next films after Taylor Swift? It's with Brooke Shields. Mm. How did this come about? Yeah. Well, it, so, so this, I had an agent now, so it was really, my agent said, you know, what do you think about doing a documentary about Brooke Shields? It's a project that the idea for it came from Allie Wentworth. Um, she's a, a great comedian. She's married to George Stephanopoulos and they have, they had just started a production company at ABC news slash Hulu. And so I think they were thinking of what documentaries do we want to do with our production company and they're friends with Brooke and Allie had the idea, well, someone should do a documentary about Brooke. And so they had this idea and it came to my, to me through my agent. And, um, I, I didn't know a huge amount about Brooke Shields because I grew up knowing her really in the nineties as like a sitcom actress. And I knew she was very beautiful and very famous. I didn't know why. So, um, I thought, huh, like, 
that's interesting. And I, I, I didn't know a lot. So I read both of her books. She's written two really excellent books. And then I went to meet her in person and, um, a little similar to the Taylor situation. You're, you're getting to know them and bonding them and building trust. But then you also, just as a filmmaker, you want to suss out like, well, I really have creative freedom to make the film I want to make. And is this person really game for an outsider's perspective on them and on their life? And for that directorial point of view, that is what makes a film memorable and great. And so Brooke immediately, I could see was, was game. She, um, she's, so smart and thoughtful and deep, but, and, but she also, she loves film. She loves art. She'd watched all of my movies, including the departure, the one in Japanese she'd watched twice, which said to me, she's very committed. Um, she, you know, she was just really open to it. And it was a similar thing where she told me what was going on with her then and why this felt like the right moment to do this kind of documentary because many people had approached her about a documentary before and this moment with, you know, her kids going off to college, it's a huge transitional moment in your life. And it's kind of the end of an era. And I think it just felt right to her. And so um, I also just from reading her books and from talking to her in person, I could see how she's one of those people who can speak her thought process out loud. And she's so introspective and sensitive that when you hear her thought process out loud, you're like, wow, you can really relate to it in these surprising and incredible ways. So I thought she'd be an amazing, of course, central storyteller. But you know, what I told her at the first meeting is that what I thought would be interesting to do because she'd already written these autobiographical books, let's do something a little different here. Like your story is absolutely the spine of this, but let's also bring in a bunch of bigger cultural context that tells the story of Brooke Shields' symbol and what that symbol represented at different points in time. Because one thing I also got from that first meeting with Brooke was that I understood even more how it had been hard for her to grow up as a child with the symbol Brooke Shields already being identified in these incredibly loaded ways sexualized, exploited child star, later virginity, purity symbol. It, it was like she was a persona and a symbol before she was a human. And I like the idea of incorporating that tension into the film. She is candid. To me, she seems like for a documentarian, uh, a documentarian's dream. Yeah. She's just candid. Mm -hmm. She doesn't hold back. Mm -hmm. Was there anything that she she was off guard with her? Like, we can't talk that no. much about my dad. No. Or anything? No. And you know what's amazing? She was always like from the very beginning. You know, she did tell me at the start that she was worried. The only little fear she had, and she said, and this comes from, you know, her childhood, was a fear of her mom being vilified. She still is so protective of her mom. And so we, we talked about that really openly. I said, you know what? Like, this, I really think that your mom deserves an incredibly complex portrayal because there's deep love there and your mom was amazing in so many ways, but she also caused you a huge amount of pain. And we, you know, and this was a really hard way to grow up. So I, I felt like, I feel like we have to talk about all of it. And I, I said, I'm really committed to showing your mom and your relationship with her is incredibly complex and layered. And also, you, you know, Terry Shields was so vilified in the media. And I thought, and especially as I dove into the archive and really got to know and see what had happened, it was remarkable to me that in some of Brooke's early films, her mom was held solely accountable 
for all of the sexual content as though all of the people actually making the films had nothing to do with it. And this mother was to blame. So, you know, at a certain point about halfway through the process, I told Brooke, you know, we're bringing in a lot of cultural context here because your mom was basically scapegoated. It was this kind of, there were these misogynistic attacks on Terry as the mother of this girl. And that was all a way of whitewashing what was really going on and really what's still going on which is that the people who are making these highly sexualized images, adults, mostly men, they're responsible for them as well, as well as the people agreeing to be in them, as well as the people watching them and consuming them. Everyone's complicit in this, but it's not solely the fault of Terry Shields. So, you know, I felt like having that bigger cultural context will help you actually have more compassion for Terry because it's like she was, she was just trying to do her best in the system that she was given. She didn't create the system. So, you know, we had a lot of open conversations about that, but what's so remarkable about Brooke is that even at the very end, when the film came out, it was going to be at Sundance. And I remember telling Brooke, you know, in interviews, is there anything you don't want, that you're like worried about me talking about, anything like that that's sensitive for you? And she said, no, because anything you can say would be true. And I was like, wow, it was kind of like, She's just so courageous. And so, yeah. and even, I think you see it in the film. It, I, I, it was a revelatory moment when she said that because I never thought about that anything I'd said in any interview ever. Like I was previously kind of nervous before a lot of interviews. What am I going to say? When Brooke said, you know, anything you can say would be true. I thought, whoa, that's, that's true. I'm not going out there lying. So what is there to be afraid of? But I think you see in the film that even when she was a little girl, Brooke is answering every interview um, truthfully and in the moment she's being totally can't she's not saying talking points like she hears a question she really thinks about it and then she gives an incredible answer she's never just repeating talking points and how rare is that I mean you do interviews all the time isn't that rare yeah and for a star yeah. of that level especially rare right for that youth mm -hmm. was it always apparent to you because this this film has a beautiful arc where in the end, we see Brooke with her daughters and her husband. Mm -hmm. They're having dinner. I love it. The daughters haven't seen the movies, but they're dissecting. It, it was this wonderful conclusion to the journey that you took us on. How, was that always the end game? How did you mm -hmm. find that? Yeah. I didn't feel like you staged it. It was yeah. forced or anything. It just felt very organic. And wow, what a wonderful button. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, it was, well, I knew from the beginning, I always knew I wanted the focus to be on on Brooke um, going from being an object and a symbol to being a human being and Brooke finding her agency. And that was the shape of the film and everything had to connect to that. Um, but, and I knew that I didn't, well, I knew it was going to be almost entirely an archive, an interview, and that we'd see a little sprinkling of contemporary Brooke but not very much, but I, I always knew let's not see her daughters until the very end, because I thought there would be this cumulative emotional power to, you know, experiencing Brooke's relationship with her mom and then experiencing, you know, Brooke going through postpartum depression with her first baby. And then you go through all of this stuff. And then you see these two daughters who are teenagers. They're almost grown up. I thought that would be so powerful to see them the first time physically, at the end of the film. 
but I didn't think, I thought maybe that will be enough just visually. I had no expectations of anything beyond that. So what happened was we were filming a little bit of day in the life footage of Brooke. And I knew we wanted to film a little with her and her daughters. So they were having dinner and I was like, okay, we'll film them having dinner. And it was, you know, just me, a cinematographer and a sound person. And I just said, right before we started filming to her daughters, I just asked them, have you guys seen any of your mom's early films? And it was like lighting, like a spark to a fire. This, And then they just started talking and we just stayed back and filmed this incredible 90 minute conversation that ensued. And it was, it was totally real. It was just, it was like one of those rare moments you have filming where you see something really happening in front of your eyes and something really meaningful. And it felt like these were things they, they'd never talked about this with each other before. They'd never talked about their mom's early films, but they clearly had thought a lot about them. They'd had their own experiences with them. There was a lot of stuff to say and discuss, but it was just a conversation that there hadn't been an opportunity for in a way. And so in a weird way, I think the fact that we were there filming provided an opportunity. It's like it's, sometimes you're filming, it puts a frame around a situation so that everything feels a little extra meaningful to the real situation and real people that are, that's going on. And I think that's what happened there. So it was, and I thought it was, so it was just like, I was, I remember leaving the room and thinking, oh my God, we got something really special there, both in how her daughter's are the voices of a younger generation in so many ways, but also in getting to see the dynamic between them and Brooke, where they can debate and challenge each other and disagree and, and learn. Brooke can learn from her daughters, but also say, you know, I have a different point of view here. And, and it was just such a contrast to how Brooke grew up with her mom, where her opinion and ideas were not asked for which relates to how on set the directors were not asking Brooke what she thought about a character, any of that. So it did end up being this perfect ending on so many levels. When did you shoot it? Where were you in the production process? Was it early on? Was it midway through? Towards the end. Yeah. It was one of our final days of filming. It was, yeah, just to get a little bit of, um, we had, you know, a rough cut the entire, both, both parts. And just, it didn't have an ending. You know, I, I did text card in my first cut saying, you know, a day in the life of Brooke, Brooke and her dog, Brooke and her family has dinner, something like that, you know? But you knew that could be a good ending. Yes, I knew, well, I knew that I wanted to see her daughters at the ending. Yeah, and I think I had, I, I wasn't counting on it as being this whole, the big scene that it is, but I knew I wanted to see Brooke and her daughters together at the ending. So that's why... Did you find the documentary in the editing room? I mean, there's the whole sexual exploitation of Brooke Shields, which is obviously the overarching theme, mm -hmm. but then Terry Shields is, she's the underpinnings of mm -hmm. all this. Mm -hmm. When did you know that Terry was going to play a big force in it? Was it immediately or did you find that, did you find it in the editing room? That was immediately. Yeah. Just knowing that that relationship just, the most important relationship in Brooke's life, hands down. Also such a complex and rich one for me to get to explore. And also one that was captured in the archival material in this extraordinary way. Because Terry's gone, but she and Brooke did so many joint appearances together. Right when I had that first meeting with Brooke, she gave me a hard drive of archival material her mom had collected over decades. And I started, I went home and I started opening random files and this is before I'd even signed on to the film. But, and I saw this stuff of Brooke and Terry where the interviewer would ask a question and you would see just from Brooke's face looking at Terry, just 
I don't know, you could just see bits of the feeling and all the complicated stuff between them playing out on their faces and especially on Brooke's face during those joint interviews. And I thought, this is extraordinary watching this stuff. We can really see the relationship change in the archival. And so right away, I knew I wanted her to be a huge part of it. Um, and then I work differently for every film. For this film, I wrote an outline early on um, with my supervising editor, David Teague. We wrote a really detailed outline of what both parts could be before I did any of the interviews, then did the interviews, then revised it. And when I look back at that now, it's very similar to how the film is. The structure is exactly the same. The, the central focus and the themes are the same. What changes is then you, you try some stuff and some things don't work, you know, or let's reduce the scope of this here, or this story isn't playing out, or that piece of cultural context feels too much like a film history movie. Let's not do that. You know, so we did discover things in the editing. And especially in this case, because it was so much about really special pieces of archival material that we could center whole scenes around that changed things as we discovered new things. But basically, the final film is a lot like um, that outline we wrote before the edit even started. When Terry passed, was it a great weight lifted for Brooke? Mm. There's something like when Terry was getting dementia, I remember mm -hmm. Brooke says something in the documentary that she felt as though she left before she actually left. Mm. But was it a great weight lifted? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the sequence about Terry dying is actually my favorite sequence of the film, because what Brooke says is that it's, it is and it isn't. Um, she says something like, God, I'm paraphrasing, but it's, uh, I thought I would never really be free until my mother died. And I think that's true. But she also had been afraid her whole life that if her mother died, she would die also, that that would be the end of her life. So I think what's so powerful about those ideas is that they seem contradictory, but they're actually kind of both true at once. It is the end of the whole life she knew before, and it was devastating, but it was also freeing in a way, too. I believe that Brooke, you know, despite knowing her mother's demons, looks at her mother as, wow, she was one hell of a manager. Well, I, th I think... I think I can't say for it, but I think she looks at her mother as what an extraordinary larger than life person she was. And oh my God, she loved me more than anything. And I think she, I think in terms of her mom as a manager, I think her feelings would be more mixed. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the Andre Agassi thing. Terry is a mom, like, you know, she, she wouldn't let Brooke shoot movies except during the summer breaks. She had a tutor with her on set. She also, Brooke had a normal non-Hollywood friend with her on all of her projects. And I think that gave Brooke this groundedness and this degree of normalcy so that she was never like in the Hollywood, lost in the Hollywood bubble like some child actors are. And I think you can see from Brooke in the film, she's an amazingly grounded person with a lot of deep friendships from her childhood still. Um, so Terry did a lot of things right in that way that other managers wouldn't have done. But I think there was no big picture strategy at all with Terry. I mean, there was no, and there was no thinking about what does Brooke want to accomplish as an actor creatively? None of that. It was just like, oh, here's an opportunity. Let's do that. Yeah, that will pay this much. And it's during summer. Perfect. You know, it, so there was no strategic long-term 
thinking about the career from Terry. And so that is why Brooke ultimately stopped working with her mom as manager. So Brooke's father, Francis Alexander Shields, was a Revlon executive, and her grandmother uh, was an Italian princess. I mean, did the father, was he, did he get her into modeling? And was there ever any pressure to live up to legacy? No, you know, the thing was, so her mom and her dad had such different backgrounds. Yeah, her dad was very fancy, wealthy, European pedigree and some aristocracy in there. Her mom grew up poor in Newark, New Jersey, and was like, you know, a hustler who came to New York to make it. So totally different families and backgrounds, her parents. Um, her dad didn't get her into modeling. Her mom got her into modeling. And it was really that, um, like, her mom had a lot of friends kind of in the village, like bohemian artist types. And uh, there was a photo shoot going on for Ivory Soap with the baby. And the babies that they had were crying all the time. They wouldn't sit still for the photo. And the photographer knew Terry. was like, don't you have a baby this age? Bring in the baby. And Brooke, I think in part because Terry had such a wild bohemian existence, and you know, Brooke was, I think, was always like extra mature and calm. So like, I'm not surprised that Brooke as a baby was like completely chill and, you know, pose, she posed for the ad and that's what started everything. And I think it was, it was really driven by Terry. And it was in part, you know, Terry would needed to be completely independent financially. She was split up from Brooke's dad very early on. So she needed financial independence and support and there weren't a lot of places for a woman to work inside the culture. Modeling was one of them. So there were opportunities there. And I think Terry saw she had this very beautiful little baby and Brooke became kind of the vehicle for all of her dreams. The last thing I'll say was interesting is that they never spoke about what Brooke did. Even when Brooke was a huge global star, it was not spoken about at her dad's house. They just talked about other stuff. They never talked about it. Isn't that interesting? Just brilliant. Lana Wilson, primetime Emmy nominated for Outstanding Directing for a documentary nonfiction program for Hulu's pretty baby, Brooke Shields. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. Thanks so much, Anthony. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.